We have here with us, as I mentioned earlier, Pascal Grenade. He and his wife uh, Becky and five children, count them five, are missionaries in Mauritius. Uh, Pascal, where is Mauritius? Mauritius is a small island in the Indian Ocean, just east of, uh, of Africa. Just east of Africa. So that's where we're going to uh, be preached to from this morning. I know uh, doing a screen is a little bit weird, but I personally am excited <laughs> to get preached to uh, from the Indian Ocean, from an island. Uh, so, Pascal, how, how long have uh, you guys been, been serving there as missionaries? Do you remember? So it's about eight years now. We left the States in 2013. Awesome. And so, you know, it'll be eight years soon. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of, like climate is there uh religiously like wh what's what's the the cultural climate of, of religion okay a lot of paganism around us and so you'll see a lot of um hinduism um you know sh hindu shrines and things like that mm -hmm. um but then you know there's also a, a growing secularism as well uh where people are are very humanistic in in their way of thinking too and so, you know, yeah, people need, need Jesus. Yeah. So what's, what's ministry and missions look like there for you? Uh, you know, what, what kind of avenues are you guys using? Yeah, so we mainly work through, you know, in the local church and through the ministries of the local church. And so, you know, uh, I serve as one of the pastors uh, in, in our church. Uh, I work alongside alongside my my dad, and you know, uh, so uh, that's the you know official capacity. Mm -hmm. But then I think it, there's just a matter of being a witness uh, wherever you go, and in uh, all the circumstances you find yourself in, just realizing that your primary calling in life is to be a witness of Christ, yeah. and so just being mindful of that, and and then living that out. Amen. I love it. I love that idea. Sh shouldn't be new to us, but reaching the, the world through the local church and through our individual lives as we, you know, step out of those churches. And so um, that, that's awesome to hear. Well, um, I'm not going to keep uh, the, this interview going. Um, I'll let you go ahead and get to uh, your, your sermon, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, it's a pleasure for me to to be addressing you this morning. I really, really wish that I could be present in person with Becky and, and the kids, but um, that will have to be for another time. And so if you do have your Bibles, I will ask you to turn with me to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. And so I, I will not read the whole text at the beginning. We'll read it as we go, uh, just to be more efficient uh, with time, but I want to start out by reading verses 1 and 6. So John chapter 4, verses 1 and 6. So the scripture says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So in this introduction here, those six verses, you know, it's a familiar story to us about how Jesus will have this encounter with the woman from Samaria. But the introduction here, at times we just pass over these things. And one of the things that gets highlighted often is, you know, how the text says he had to pass through Samaria. And this morning, I don't want to highlight this particular verse. I want to uh, talk briefly about the function or the purpose that, that this introduction is serving in relation to the whole of the text. Because you see here in verses 1 and 2, John establishes a link between what's going to happen with this woman and what has preceded. So in chapter 3, uh, you have the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. And then there's this, um, uh, we have John telling us about how the disciples of John were a bit jealous, John the Baptist, and how John the Baptist in John chapter 3 gave this testimony about Jesus, that Jesus has to increase and that he himself needs to decrease. And so when we read John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, there we get reasons why Jesus must increase and John must decrease. And if you read this text, among other things, you will see that Jesus must increase because he reveals the Father. Then secondly, Jesus must increase because he gives or he possesses the Spirit without measure. And then Jesus must increase because the Father has given all things into his hand. In other words, Jesus is the agent through whom the Father accomplishes his will. And so John the Baptist gives this testimony concerning Jesus, that Jesus needs to increase and he must decrease. And he gives these three reasons why Jesus must increase. So at the beginning of chapter 4, John leads of this chapter by mentioning how um, when Jesus heard that the Pharisees heard that he was baptizing more than John. And the reason I think that this detail is included is because John wants to establish a link between what has been said in chapter 3 and what he is going to say in chapter 4. So in a sense, this introduction here, verses 1 to 6, is inviting the reader to bring the truths that have been mentioned in John chapter 3, to bring these truths to bear on the conversation between Jesus and the woman. So let me remind you these three things. John chapter 3, verse 31 to 36, why must Jesus increase? Because he reveals the Father, he gives or he possesses the Spirit without measure, and then because the Father has given all things into his hands, or he's the agent through whom the Father accomplishes his will. And so the flow of the conversation between Jesus and the woman of Samaria can be divided into two sections. And in each of these sections, these truths that have been mentioned in John chapter 3, verse 31 to 36, uh, we will see these things uh, having a bearing on this interaction between Jesus and the woman. And so, you know, in these two sections, uh, I think I would divide the text, verses 7 to 18, and then verses 19 to 24. 
And then there's a bit of a conclusion in verses 25 to uh, verse 30. So in those two main central sections, there are two central truths that are being communicated about Jesus. And I just want to look at these truths um, one after the other. So first of all, in verses 7 to 18, the truth that is being communicated about Jesus there is that Jesus is the one who mediates the gift of God to men. Jesus is the one who mediates the gift of God to men. So we read in verse 7, there came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus, the, Jesus asks this woman for a drink. And the text notes that the woman is astonished. And uh, her surprise comes from two factors. First of all, Jewish customs encouraged men not to talk to women in public. So we read in verse 9, um, the first part, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? That was just the uh, custom of the day where, you know, strict Jews would encourage men not to speak to women in public. But then secondly, the surprise of the woman comes from the fact that Jews have no dealings with Samaritan. But then Jesus, I want you to notice Jesus's reply in verse 10. Jesus says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that he's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, when we read Jesus's uh, response in verse 10, it's important that we realize that he's establishing a connection between the gift of God and his own person. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that he's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, there's also parallelism, parallelism in this text. Okay, so... Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that he's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, given you living water. So the parallelism there establishes the fact that this living water, whatever it may be, that is itself the gift of God. So what is this living water that Jesus gives? Um, if... Uh, we consider the, the context. Jesus is drawing water from a, uh, the woman is drawing water from a well. So the water is stagnant. Living water would be water that flows. But I think uh, there's more to it here. Okay, when Jesus is talking about living water, I think he's um, drawing something from the Old Testament. Earlier in, in John chapter three, in his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus made a reference to being born of water and spirit. And that reference was itself an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. So I'll read these verses for you. I will sprinkle clean water on you 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules so if we take our clue from the preceding chapter from chapter 3 and we are mindful of that intentional connection that John establishes between these two chapters, then we have good reason to understand the gift of God in light of what was said in chapter 3. So what is this gift of God? It is a clear reference to salvation that God grants to men in Christ. And then there are other Old Testament texts that seem to indicate that this is correct. So for instance, if you read Isaiah chapter 49, Verses 8 to 10. The, the scripture says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, Come out, to those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall know they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind, no sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. This text talks about eschatological salvation, and it says it describes salvation as God leading those who are thirsty to springs of water. So the point of Jesus then is that he is the agent through whom God offers this salvation to men. So you remember in John chapter 3, uh, God has given all things into the hands of the Son. In other words, Jesus is the agent through whom God accomplishes His will. And this same idea is being repeated here. Jesus mentions this same truth to the woman. There's a gift that God gives. And Jesus is the agent through whom man receives that gift so as we keep reading we realize that the woman misunderstands the spiritual nature of jesus's words or she either misunderstands or she doesn't believe him so in verses 11 to 12 john chapter 4 verse 11 the woman said to him sir you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep where do you get that living water are you greater than our father jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So we see the woman's misunderstanding or her incredulous uh, reply to Jesus. And now I want you to notice Jesus' response to her in verse 13. So verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be, never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is saying that he's offering much more than temporary reprieve from thirst. What he offers is true and lasting satisfaction to the soul. So if we go back to verse 10, there's an implication there. 
Read verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, living water. So the implication there is that the woman herself does not know what is best for her. And she doesn't understand and she doesn't know what will give her lasting satisfaction. She did not know the gift of God and she did not know that Jesus is the one who mediates that gift to men. And now we turn back to the Old Testament and this is precisely what we read in Isaiah chapter 55 verses 1 to 3. That Jesus is the one who mediates that gift to men. So Isaiah chapter 55 verse 1. Come everyone who thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an, elast an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So we see that Isaiah 55 verse 1, there's an invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And Jesus is saying to this woman, you don't know what is good. You don't know what will satisfy your soul. I, as the agent of the Father, through whom the Father reveals his will, I have come to make known to you your need. And Jesus tells this lady that he's able to give to her the gift of God, that which will truly satisfy her, the longing in her soul. Sadly, at this point, the woman still fails to grab the spiritual nature of Jesus's message. Look with me in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So at this point, since the woman still fails to grab the spiritual nature of Jesus's message, Jesus points out to her the emptiness of her own life and the fleeting nature of her pursuit of satisfaction. So in verse 17, in verse 16, excuse me, the scripture says, Jesus said to her, call, go call your husband and come here. And verse 17 and 18, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What we are reminded of when we consider this aspect of the woman's life is that sin never satisfies. Sin promises pleasure and fulfillment, but always leaves the person hurt and unfulfilled. Sin promises freedom, but in the end entangles the person further into slavery. So there were things in which that woman looked for to obtain satisfaction. The fact that she had been in relationship with, you know, five men, the person she was in a relationship with at that point, was not her husband. She was living in a sinful situation. She was looking for satisfaction in these things. And these things in which she looked for satisfaction, those things left her isolated, ashamed, 
and an outcast of society. You know, there's a editorial text in verse six that it was about the sixth hour that Jesus was sitting beside the well. This corresponds to noon, okay? The sixth hour is midday, noon. And uh, it's the hottest time of the day. And typically that's not the time at which people would come to draw water. And why does that woman come at noon to draw water? Because she was isolated. She was ashamed of herself and she was an outcast of society. So she pursued satisfaction in uh, sinful things and sin left her isolated, ashamed and an outcast of society. And to this woman, Jesus says, I can give you true satisfaction of the soul. So Jesus had to, since she failed to understand Jesus's spiritual message to her, the spiritual nature of Jesus's message, Jesus pointed out her own uh, lack of satisfaction, how her pursuits had left her empty and unfulfilled and ashamed. And Jesus then says, hey, look where your own pursuits have led you. Now I am offering to you something that can truly satisfies you, satisfy you. Jesus alone can give true satisfaction to the soul. He fulfills, he delivers from slavery, and he offers abundant life. And now this leads us to the second truth that we learn about Jesus from the text. In verses 19 to 24, we read that Jesus is the one through whom worship is acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Jesus is the only one through whom worship is acceptable and pleasing to the Father. So Jesus pointed out that the woman has had uh, five husbands and the one she now lives with is not her husband. So the woman responds to Jesus's supernatural knowledge by asking a theological question. So in verse 19, the woman says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so she, she's raising a question implicitly. Where is the true place that we ought to worship? And now, when we look at Jesus' response to her, I think that there are two important points that Jesus makes. First of all, Jesus makes the point that true worship is not a matter of geographical location physical posture, or following a particular liturgy or an external ritual. Look in verse 21. Jesus says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. In verse 21 and 24, Jesus makes the point true worship is not a matter of geographical location. Okay, he says in verse 21, 
Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So Jesus is pointing out to this lady that the true nature of worship doesn't depend on where you are worshiping. It's not about whether you worship in a particular location. It's not about your physical posture even. It's not about whether you are following the right liturgy. And here Jesus is not merely saying that true worship must be spiritual. The point that Jesus is making is that true worship must stem from a heart that has been made alive into a new creation by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's how we need to interpret verse 23. When Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking people, such people, to worship him. True worship has to come from a heart that has been made alive into a new creation. As long as a person is not a new creation in Christ, that person cannot offer to the Father worship that is acceptable and pleasing to him. And then the second point that Jesus is making is that true and acceptable worship is only made possible by the work of Jesus. So read verse 23 again. So Jesus says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. I want to draw your attention to this phrase that Jesus used. Um, the hour is coming and is now here. Uh, in the Gospel of John, this language is often used to refer to a new era of God's dealing with his people. So when Jesus says the hour is coming and is now already here, he's connecting this new era with his own person. In other words, Jesus' work will inaugurate this new era of God's dealing with his people. Without the work of Jesus, true worship of the Father is impossible. So Jesus is making these two points, okay? He's saying that true worship is not a matter of geographical location. What is important is that true worship must stem from a heart that has been made alive into a new creation by the regenerating work of the Spirit. And then for this to happen... The work of Jesus himself is essential. Without the work of Jesus, without his atoning work, true worship of the Father is impossible. So these two points together help us understand this truth concerning the nature of true worship that is acceptable and pleasing to God. True worship must have its basis in the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Spirit by which men becomes a new creation. Without Jesus, without his atoning work on the cross, without his substitutionary death, by which he bore God's wrath for his people, without his resurrection from the dead, his intercession for us, we 
cannot be made a new creation by the regenerating work of the Spirit. And so these two truths together help us understand that true worship must have its basis in the atoning work of Christ and the regenerating work of the Spirit. So this text highlights these two truths concerning Jesus. Jesus is the one who mediates the gift of God to men. Without Christ, salvation is impossible. And then the second truth, Jesus is the one through whom worship is acceptable and pleasing to the Father. So in conclusion then, there's a call for us. First of all, there's a call for us to examine, examine our own lives. Where do we find our satisfaction? Do we find our satisfaction in Christ alone? You know, it's a good thing to enjoy the things of life that have been bestowed upon us by our Creator. It's a good thing for a person to enjoy his work, to enjoy his spouse, to enjoy his children, to enjoy leisure activities. However, there's a difference between enjoying these things and living for those things. And what Jesus is helping us to understand here is that the things of life can only be enjoyed when we have first found our satisfaction in Christ. Without him, the good things of life leave us empty and unfulfilled. Secondly, there's a call for us to examine our worship. So we need to ask ourselves the question, are we a new creation in Christ? Have we truly found in him by faith the forgiveness of sins and the new abundant life? He needs to be the basis of our worship. Sadly, the basis of the worship of many people, of many churchgoers, is the fact that they were born in a certain family or the fact that they went through a certain ritual. Perhaps they walked an aisle. Perhaps they were baptized. Perhaps they had a spiritual experience at a revival. But these things cannot be the basis of our worship. The basis of our worship has to be that we have been made a new creation by the atonement of Christ and by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. So tonight, this morning, excuse me, if you examine yourself and you find that you are not a true worshiper, then hear the words of Jesus again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never, never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So there's a call for us to examine our worship, a call for us to examine our own lives. Where do we find our satisfaction? Is it in Christ alone that we find our satisfaction? And then I think there's a call for us to imitate the faith of the Samaritan woman. In verse 25 to 30, we read her response to Jesus revealing himself to her. So in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Then verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus reveals to that woman 
I am the Messiah. I am the one who will tell you all things. I am the one who perfectly reveals to you the will of the Father, the nature of the Father, the character of the Father. I'm the one through whom the gift of God to men is given to men. And then what does that woman do to the fact that Jesus has revealed himself to her? We read in verse 27. Then, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jaw, her water jaw, and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So how did she respond to God's gracious revelation of Jesus to her? She shared the good news. There are those around us who looked for satisfaction in the wrong things. There are those around us whose worship of God is unacceptable. God graciously revealed to this undeserving Samaritan woman the truth concerning his son. And she was eager to tell others about him. We are as undeserving as that woman was. And yet, graciously, God has revealed his son to us and made us a new creation by his spirit in Christ. Will we also respond by telling others about the satisfaction of the soul and the access to the Father that we have in Christ? All around us, whether you are in Ringgold, Georgia, or whether you are here in Mauritius, there are people who do not know the gift of God. They do not know what is good for themselves. But by God's grace, we know what's good for themselves. What they need is Jesus. They need Jesus to give to them the gift of God. They need Jesus so that their worship of God can turn from idolatry to being a true, acceptable, pleasing worship of God. So this morning, let me ask you this question. Will you commit to telling those people around you that true satisfaction and the abundant life is found in Christ alone? Jesus is the one who mediates the gift of God to men. Jesus is the one through whom worship is acceptable and pleasing to the Father. Will you commit to living your life in such a way that you will be a witness to Jesus? So that you will be a witness telling people that he mediates the gift of God to them. Will you be a witness and commit to telling people that true worship is acceptable and pleasing only through Jesus? Let us bow in prayer, please. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that in deserving as we were, that you revealed 
your son to us, that you opened our eyes to his glory, that in your grace you opened our eyes to our own sinfulness, our own need for satisfaction. And we thank you that you showed us that true and lasting satisfaction can only be found in you through Christ. Father, I thank you that graciously you've done that for us. And now I ask you to impress upon our hearts the need to emulate our Savior. The need for us to look around us at those who are as sheep without shepherd and have compassion for these people. Father, impress upon our hearts that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And we pray that we will be bold in our witness, that we will tell others about Jesus so that they can turn from the darkness to the light and become true worshipers of God and that their worship will be acceptable and pleasing to you. I pray for Poplar Springs Baptist Church. I ask you, Father, to help them to be a witness where you've placed them in Ringgold, Georgia, and then as they seek to expand into uh, Georgia, the United States, and then to the ends of the earth. I pray that they will have a passion for your glory and that they will have a desire to see lost souls come to faith in Christ for your glory. And I ask you all these things because of Jesus, your son, and for the glory of your name. Amen.